Good morning, Southbridge. Happy Easter. Hopefully you've had a great day so far. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus Christ has risen. That is right. Give him glory for that. That's for sure. I was talking this week to a mentor pastor of mine, and he was sharing with me about a pastor from the generation before him, William Sangster, who at the end of his life uh, had lost his voice and couldn't speak, and he had written a letter to his daughter on his last Easter Sunday. And the letter said, it's a terrible thing to wake up on Easter morning and to not be able to shout that he is risen. And it's an even more terrible thing to have a voice and not want to shout that he is risen. And we've seen people today, just so you know, this is a third service that we've done. We've had people already start new life in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, today can be a day where God transforms your life. He changes you. We're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that was just read dramatically on that video that we watched in Ezekiel chapter 37. Um, if you're a guest here today, we don't ask a lot of you. The one thing I just asked for you today is if you would take a moment, there was a little connection card that was stuck in the, uh, either sitting on your seat if you're on the white chairs or stuck in the cups if you're in the other chairs. And if you just fill that out and take it out to the orange tent before you leave today, we've got some gifts that we want to give you. And then next week, we're going to be doing baptisms, so we invite you to come back and see that. Some of you might want to be baptized. If you want to be baptized, whether you're a guest or not a guest, go out to the blue tent. We call it a celebration station. It's got balloons on it and stuff. It's across from the orange tent as you're on your way out. So go get your kids, and on your way out, go out to the tent, tell them you want to be baptized, and we're going to be doing baptisms next week. And next week also, if you are a guest, we're going to be starting a new section in the book of Mark, and uh, we'd love to have you come and be a part of what's happening next week. And so you're invited to come back as well. But if you would fill that card out, and then I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump into Ezekiel. I'm going to give you a head start to go ahead and get there. It's right after Lamentations, weeping and mourning there. And then right before Daniel is the prophet Ezekiel. And we're going to be in that, an Old Testament picture of the power of God and the resurrection power of God. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into the message. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, that we get to gather together and praise your name, that we aren't just coming up with a religion, that you've given us hope, that you've given us a future, that you've given us life through your son Jesus Christ because the tomb was empty. And we know without the tomb being empty, we'd be wasting our time here today, and we would be hopeless. At best, we'd be more moral, but we'd be telling people stuff that's not true about you and under your wrath, and uh, we are grateful that is not true. We are grateful that you've risen, that you've risen for sure, and that the tomb was empty, and our lives don't have to be empty because of you. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for transforming our lives. Thank you for giving us life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, thanks for being here today, all of you, whether you're a guest or not a guest. And some of you were invited. And if you were filling out that card, if you tell us how you were invited, some people see a road sign and they come to church. We had that last week. We had some people trust Christ as their Savior. I saw a road sign, came to church. Some people get mailers. Some people uh, get tapped on the shoulder at work. Say, hey, do you want to come to my church and get invited? And you probably get invited to a lot of things that you don't pay a lot of attention to. Like, think about how many invites you probably get. Just in your inbox and in your email, you probably got invited to fill out a bracket, whether it's from cbs.com or espn.com, because of the March Madness is going on. I'll just ask you this. How's that going? Hmm. <laughs> We're all failures. Anyway, um, I'm a Michigan State fan, so I can't talk any trash about any team this year. Uh, but there are different invitations that come, right? You get invited to weddings, you get invited to birthday parties. If you're part of a family, then maybe the family has get-togethers, and you get invited to those. If you don't, I'm sorry, uh, we'd talk to you afterwards if you'd like to, but there are different things that get invited to. Some invitations are meaningful, some you to go to the thing, it doesn't mean a whole lot, and some of them can change your life. And I was thinking about life-changing invitations this week, and I was thinking about when a man proposes to a woman, that a proposal is an invitation. It's not just a uh, a proposition that's given. And think about what their woman's being invited to. He's, you know, he saves up some money, buys a ring, gets down on his knees, says the sweetest things he's ever said in his life and hopes that she says yes. And she says yes. She's not saying yes to go to a wedding. 
Jesus, that's a life-changing invitation. I was thinking about it in my own life when I proposed to my wife, Shanna, and we've been married for 15 years, going on 16 years now. We had dated for four years before we got engaged, and we were high school sweethearts, or, or I mean, not high school, but college sweethearts, and dated all the way through college, and we were coming home from college one weekend, and I told her the reason why we were coming home, we're both from the same hometown, was to help my mom move, and we did that. But what I didn't tell her was the rest of the story. I didn't tell her the next part, which is that I had planned out this date where I was going to propose to her on it, and then we were going to end up with our families at the end. I talked to her dad about it. I had it all planned out, had gone through all the logistical details, and what we were going to do was going to be a progressive date. And the first part was going to be a significant spot for us where we had our first kiss. Yes, we did kiss before we got married. That is revealed. The next part was going to be like our first date, and then it was going to progress through all these different significant spots for us, and it was going to end up at this place that, where I was planning on having our first kiss, and I threw up that night, so I had to call an audible, um, <clears throat> but it was a significant spot for us, and then our, whole, our families are going to be there, and I had everything planned out, like where we were going to be, how far they were, the best spots to go, and which order, and how long it would take to drive from one spot to the other, and we were going to start off, I was going to ask her at the very first spot where I kissed her, which was out behind her house in this spot where the trees were at, and it was out the, the, some of the neighbors had some horses. It was kind of a romantic spot for us. And I went out there, and I was going to videotape it. But you got to remember, this is before iPhones and, like, you could carry multimedia stuff in your pocket. I had one of those huge cameras. I, like, checked it out from the library at our school and went out there. I set it up on the big tripod, tried to hide it behind some branches, laid the blanket out, knew where we were going to stand, knew what I was going to say. I forgot the video cassette. Some of you are like, what's a video cassette? It's this big plastic VHS tape. I didn't have one of those. And so you can hit record all you want and nothing happens. And so I had to go get a VHS tape. I ran up to one of the neighbor's houses through this guy where he owned the horses. And he was a police officer. So I come running through his backyard. He comes out on his deck. It's a good thing I didn't get shot. And then he, he says, what are you, who are you? What are you doing? I remind him who I was. Told him what I was doing. He was happy to help. Comes back out. I thought it was ironic. He gives me an old copy of NYPD Blue. <laughs> says, you can tape over it. Hands it to me. I didn't know cops watch cop shows, but anyway, so I put it in there. They, do you watch cop shows? Anyway, they put it in the, the thing, I hit record, and then I took my wife out there, and I get down on my knee, right where I was, she doesn't know we're recording this whole thing, get down on my knee, I read 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter in the Bible, and love is patient, <laughs> I'm not always, but love is patient, kind, and gentle, and doesn't boast, and doesn't keep record of wrongs, and I tell her, that's the kind of love I, I want us to have in our marriage. I talk about the relationship we had had up to that point, and then I shared some vision for what I hoped our marriage would be like, and I, and I put a ring on her finger, and I asked the question. I said, will you marry me? She started crying, and we've got it on tape. We've seen it since. We embrace at that moment. She still hasn't answered me, though. We're holding each other, and she's crying. I think they're tears of joy, and I love on the videotape watching it because I didn't know this live, but I watched it later. She actually peeks at the ring behind my back when we're... <laughs> well, that was great. And she's still deciding. I don't know at that moment, but... And I said, well, is that a yes? And she said, yes. And when she said yes, she wasn't just saying that she'd come to an event with me and that we'd be dressed nicer than everybody else and everybody pay attention to us. She wasn't saying yes to an event. She was saying yes to a life together. That we go through highs and lows, mountains and valleys, awesome times, dark times. That we'd walk through the valley, we'd be on the mountaintop, we'd you know, have children, we've had four of them, exciting times, it's a celebration every time. We've lost people that we love too. That's terrible. We've had desperate moments. It seemed like hopeless moments. Those are terrible. We shared all that together. It was a life-changing invitation. Let me tell you something about Easter. Easter is not just an event that happened a couple thousand years ago. Easter is an invitation. It's an invitation to hope. It's an invitation to life. It's an invitation to a new beginning in your spiritual journey. It's an invitation to forgiveness for the believer in Jesus Christ who's accepted an invitation. It's an invitation to celebrate that he has risen. The gospel is true, and if the tomb wasn't empty, 
you're the worst, as a proclaimed believer of Jesus, you are worse off than someone who doesn't claim to believe in Jesus. But the tomb is empty. He is risen, and you have reason to rejoice, and he invites us to those things. We're going to talk about that from Ezekiel chapter 37 today, and so hopefully you found it if you brought your Bible. Otherwise, the verses will be up on the screen. Ezekiel is a prophet of God. That means he speaks for God. He preaches for God. God gives him a message and tells him what to say. Ezekiel, unlike any other prophet, experiences his prophecies. He enters in and dramatizes them out. So he's the kind of guy that does a lot of object lessons, and you see them through the book. The time that's happening is a pretty hopeless time. The Israelites are in exile meaning they're no longer in their land. They've been taken captive. They're imprisoned by other people. They don't have a king and they don't have a temple, which is problematic because there are three main promises in the Old Testament. One is that you'll have a land. They don't have a land. Now there's going to be a seed. That means you'll have a king. There is no king. The other is that there'll be a blessing. His presence will dwell among his people. There's no temple where his, te- his presence dwells. And so the people are tempted, and many of them probably did at this moment, to doubt God to doubt his power, to doubt his ability to be able to fulfill the promises he's given because the promises he's given aren't happening from their perspective. That's what's taking place. From God's perspective, they're cut off from him because they're sinning. And he's just given them another promise in chapter 36. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And they'd be tempted to doubt that that's true. And so then God gives Ezekiel a unique invitation And he invites him in to experience something pretty hopeless. Look at it. Ezekiel chapter 37. We'll go all the way through verse 14 today, but I'm going to start reading just verses 1 through 3 right now. Ezekiel says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Verse 2. He led me back and forth. And so Ezekiel's experiencing all this. He was trained to be a priest, by the way. It'd be scandalous for him to be amongst dead bodies. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. In verse 3, God speaks to him. He asked me, son of man, human, is what he's saying, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Ezekiel's been transported here, whether in vision and his mind or actually physically transported to a place that's completely and utterly hopeless. He's in a valley. We know in the Bible, valleys are not good places to be. Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms you hear at funerals oftentimes. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's metaphorically talking about those difficult places in life. Ezekiel's not walking through the shadow of death. He's in the valley of death. As he looks around, there's bones everywhere. It's a hopeless place. And God's given the invitation in hopelessness, an invitation to hope. And if we're going to accept God's Easter invitation, we must accept his invitation to hope. He gives hope to the hopeless. Here's Ezekiel. He's in this valley. Try to imagine what that was like as a priest. It's a bunch of dead bones. You're not supposed to touch them, but God's the one who's put you there. And you walk through, and it says there's a vast, there are many bones that are there. I don't know if you've seen a place of destruction or not, but verse 9 tells us that this is, these weren't people that just died out in the wilderness. They didn't just go hungry. They didn't die of old age. This was an army that was slaughtered. And so you try and picture a battlefield where the bodies are just left. That's what he has here. Some of you saw this week, uh, just on the news, the uh, terror attacks that took place in Brussels. And I don't know what the final numbers were of lives that were lost and people that were wounded, but the last I had seen, there were 30 people that died. There were two uh, two bombs that went off in in an airport in Brussels, and 30 people died, and last I saw, 200 people were wounded. 
And if you've turned on the news this week, you've seen pictures of this or video of this. They'll have people, there's gray smoke that's there. People will describe the smell of burnt flesh that happened there. Uh, some people that survived have given their stories. You see some people that are laying out on the sidewalks waiting for ambulances and medical assistance to come because they're trying to survive. And, and you even saw dead bodies on the news this week if you watch this. I saw one video where a taxi driver was going back into the airport after the bombs had gone off to find his son, and he turned his phone on, and he started walking through, and there's this gray smoke coming, and you just hear yelling in the background. It's, it's like I imagine a hell-type yell would be. People in torment, they're dying. And the burning's taking place, and there's debris everywhere, and he starts walking through to try and find his son, and he goes by walls, and the walls have blood smeared on them from people who are probably holding themselves up at the walls. There's blood on the floor where people walked. Uh, there's footprints of blood, and... And there was one time where he stopped, there was a baby crying, and he turns and he looks at the baby, and the baby's sitting there crying. I don't know if you saw this video or not, and there's a dead woman next to the baby. I assume is the baby's dead mother. It's hopelessness. That was 30 people dying and a couple hundred being wounded. What we have here in this passage is tens of thousands of people dead. We read later in this chapter, and we'll get to it, it's the army of Israel. They're taken in exile, they've been slaughtered, and they're not just dead bodies that are here. This is not, like some of you remember the images of 9-11. We're looking for the, no, there's no identifying these bodies. It says in verse 2, the bones are very dry. The reason why Ezekiel tells us that they're very dry is he's pointing out to us, they've been there for a long time. There is no life in them. There's no marrow in those bones. There's no skin on them. The skin is either decomposed or animals have eaten it away. Maybe birds have come by. And this vision gets interpreted by God in verse 11. If you have your Bible, you can jump there. I believe we have it for the screen. It tells us what this image is. God says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, people that are without hope and cut off from God. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Cut off from what? Cut off from who? It's from God. You know what the New Testament says to, about us? that when we are separated from God, we are without hope and without God. We are cut off because of our sin. And the Bible says that we all sin, for everybody sins, falls short of the glory of God. And here you've got a situation, Ezekiel's describing the most hopeless situation you can possibly describe, where the bones, they're separated from one another, they're not even, there's no life in them whatsoever, and God asks the question, can these bones live? The answer is no, there is no chance. There may have been a time when there was still skin on them. Maybe you could have resuscitated them, God. Maybe there was a time when God could have intervened, but that time, that what he's describing here is supposed to put the picture in our head, that that time is clearly past. It's over. They're hopeless. They are cut off. Have you ever been there before? Where you're so hopeless you feel like, God could have done something maybe at one point, but not now. Some of you in marriages, the marriage could have been saved, but it's past that point now. Or in finances, the finances could have been but not now. We're too far gone. Maybe spiritually. Maybe when I was a kid or if this would have, before I did, but that time has passed. Or some other moment where you feel like God could have intervened, but that moment's gone. You know, we see that all through the Bible. And the next section of Mark that we're going to start going through next week, there's one story in Mark chapter 5 where the synagogue ruler named Jairus his daughter gets sick and he comes to Jesus, which is interesting because all of his buddies would be telling me, no, you don't, Jesus is the other guy. That's the other team. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. We're against Jesus. But when your family gets sick, 
guess what? You don't care what your friends think. And so he goes to Jesus. He's probably the same synagogue ruler that saw Jesus cast out a demon in Mark chapter 1. And so he's thinking, if anybody can help, maybe it's this guy. And so he goes to Jesus. He gets Jesus on their way. Jesus gets stopped by another woman who wants to be healed. Jesus heals her, and he starts having a conversation with her. And that's problematic for Jairus. Because while that's happening, some of Jairus' friends come to him and say, it's over. Your daughter died. And then they ask, why bother the teacher any longer? Let me interpret that. Maybe he could have helped, but that time has passed. You've now entered into the moment of hopelessness, Jairus. You know what Jesus says to him? Mark chapter 5, you can look it up on your own when you get home. Mark chapter 5, verse 36, is that Jesus, ignoring what they said, he doesn't need to listen to that, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Let me interpret that for you. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are, trust me. Jesus goes to the guy's house. People are mourning because the daughter has died. Jesus says, she's just asleep. They start laughing at Jesus. He goes into the room with just Jairus, the mom, a couple of his disciples. He raises this young girl from the dead. It's almost like when you read a story like that, it's almost as if God does his best work when we're in our most hopeless state. Or I think of John chapter 11, when Jesus has his own friend, Lazarus, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus gets sick. And and some people come to tell Jesus about it, and it says that Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, but... And you got to ask yourself the question, why does the Bible have to point out that Jesus loves somebody? Because Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves you, Jesus loves me, for God so loved the world. It's in that same book in John, John 3, 16, for God so loved the whole world. God never made a person he doesn't love, but God loves you. And God loved Lazarus, and God loved Mary, and God loved Martha. The reason why it gets pointed out in that passage is because what God's about to do next, from a human perspective, seems like he doesn't love them. It says that Jesus loved them, but he stayed where he was. And he has a conversation with the disciples. He stays there for two days. And he tells his disciples, this won't end in death. But this is going to happen for the glory of God. Now, I don't know what you know about Bible background or, or customs or anything like that, but they didn't roll around in like a swagger wagon. You know, they didn't have a minivan. They didn't have black Tahoes. They could like the special ops come pulling up at the la- right at the last moment, right before Lazarus dies. You know, they had to walk. And so after two days of hanging with his buddies, they then walk to Lazarus' house. When they get there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, don't you think to yourself, you said this wouldn't end in death. This guy's dead. Maybe they thought, well, he's right about everything else. We'll just give him a break on this one. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If he's wrong about this one, he's not God. If he's not God, you're still in your sins. He didn't say that Lazarus wouldn't die. He said it wouldn't end in death. His two sisters come out, Mary and Martha, on separate occasions. They both say the exact same words. You can read it, John chapter 11. If you had been here, my brother would still be alive. In other words, there was a time when you could have helped. That time has passed. Jesus says to them, take me to where he's buried. He's in a cave with other bodies. There's a stone in front of me. They rolled a stone away. He says, Lazarus, come out. He has to say the name Lazarus because otherwise all the bodies would come out. Says Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes walking out. You know why? Because Jesus has the power of the resurrection. And it's almost like when you start looking at these things, God does his best work when we're in our most hopeless state. And then you think about the story we talk about today. It's at the end of every gospel Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I won't tell the whole thing. But if you've been to church on Easter before, you probably heard it. 
We talk about like Good Friday, we call it good because of what it did for us. It wasn't good what happened. Jesus was dying on the cross for your sins and for my sins. Thorn, you know, crown of thorns put on his head and beaten and mocked and then nailed to a cross. It was, it was terrible. But what he was doing is he was paying for us. Somebody had to pay. God couldn't just overlook our sins. What is sin? Sin is this. Sin is when we start to do our own thing. It's when we decide we know how to live life better than God, and we've all done it. The Bible says everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. Or when we, he tells us to do something and we don't do that. Both are sin. We missed the mark. We don't measure up. We're not good enough. Jesus was good enough. He never sinned. He lived a life that we couldn't live, so he died the death that we deserve to die. And he dies on Good Friday. And, and if you talk to people who understand that, they know that they're very solemn on Good Friday. But everybody's excited on Easter morning. Let me tell you who wasn't excited on Easter morning. The women that were going to the tomb. Because they didn't expect it to be empty. Read every account. They're going there to anoint his body. In fact, even when the tomb is empty, they don't, even though Jesus said, they're going to kill me and then three days later I'm going to rise from the dead, no one on Good Friday was thinking, it's okay, he'll be back in three days. And the morning of, those women, even though the tomb was empty, they didn't remember that he said that. Do you know why? Because sometimes we get to such a hopeless spot that we forget the promises of God. And that's where those women were at. And they went to that tomb, and then the body wasn't there. And it wasn't until the angel said to them in Luke chapter 24 that he is risen. His body's not here. And that's why we say he's risen. He's risen indeed. You know what that is? That's an invitation. It's an invitation to hope. It's an invitation to life. And so when Ezekiel gets asked this question, can these bones live? The answer is no. They can't. There is no hope. And let me tell you something. There are reasons to have no hope. If your hope is in money and money's gone, then you're hopeless. If your hope is in some relationship or that you're going to ha have a relationship that you don't currently have, there's reason to be, of course you're going to be hopeless because your hope's in something that's not happening. If your hope is in a dream that you have for your life and your life's not working out the way that you had hoped, of course you're going to be hopeless. If your hope is in other people's affirmation of you or doing good, performing well at your job, all of that stuff, and it doesn't go that way, of course you're going to be hopeless. But if you have hope in the living God, regardless of circumstances, there's always reason to hope. You've got to ask who's your hope in, because Jesus invites us to hope. Ezekiel's answer should have been, no, there's no shot here. There are no, there's no chance for these bones to live again, because here's why. He could have done statistical analysis, and apparently people do this on stuff. Have you ever seen stuff that's a long shot? Like, think about what's the biggest long shot that you can imagine. Like, you getting struck by lightning today when it's not raining 10 times. How about that? Or winning the lottery and you didn't even play. How about that? Or I, I don't know if you did if you did do the brackets I, if you filled them out I looked at the brackets before what was it last week was the first week before that happened and uh, I was looking at who's the who's got the least shot and there were teams on there I'd never even heard of <laughs> Farley Dixon I think was one I don't I don't even care I don't think they'll be there next year so I don't even care enough to look them up one person wrote about Tulsa that someday people are like a hundred years from now some archaeologists are going to dig up brackets and be like well, how was Tulsa on there and that's what the rest of us are thinking. <laughs> But every team had at least, according to their st the, the odds makers, 0.1% chance of winning the tournament. And I thought to myself, no, they don't. Like, but then I thought, if you're in the tournament, maybe everyone else won't show up for the game. Like, they'll forfeit. So you're saying there's a chance. All that one in a million talk back there. There's no chance here. The odds are zero. But look how he responded at the end of verse 3. I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know O omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. O omniscient, meaning all-knowing. From my perspective, it's a no. 
The only reason it makes sense for him to answer this is because of who is asking the question. The one who just promised in chapter 36, I'll give you a new heart, I'll give you a new life, I'll give you a new spirit. The invitation is not just to hope, it's to live. If we're going to accept the invitation that Jesus Christ offers us on Easter, we must accept his invitation to life. We must accept his invitation to life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you don't like that statement, I didn't say it, I didn't make it up, the Christians didn't make it up, talk to Jesus about it. But what he's offering is life, real life, as opposed to the shell of life that many of us live where we walk around and it looks like we're alive, we're breathing, we're talking, we're, we seem to be alive, but we lay in bed at night and we know there's something missing. That's because you're cut off from God. Look at what he says next in this passage. Then he said to me, Ezekiel's talking, he's talking about God. He said that God said to me, prophesy, which means to preach, to these bones. <laughs> That's weird. And say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, you're, you're trained to be a priest. You're not supposed to be around dead bodies. Here you are in this valley. There's a bunch of dead bones. And now God's telling you to take a step of faith that won't make any sense to you. You want me to preach to these bones? Let me tell you something. This is exactly anybody who's ever shared the gospel with somebody else. This is what you're doing. Because the New Testament tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's every person's walking around. They're living, they're breathing, but they're dead. They're spiritually cut off from God. And they're spiritually speaking, they don't, they don't have any connection with God, so they don't have connection with the life. I'm the way, the truth, the life. And so they can appear to have life, they don't have life. And so when you share the gospel with somebody, you're basically saying, come back to life, dead person, come to life. So in other words, you can't say it the right way. You can't do it. I remember when I was being trained to preach, I was in college, I had a professor tell me about an old pastor who, when he would train young preachers, the first time he'd take them to preach, he'd take them to a cemetery. And he'd say, preach to the graves and tell them to get out of the grave and walk around. Because that's what you're doing every time you preach the gospel. You're saying to dead people, come alive. You can't do it. And God's teaching that to Ezekiel here. He tells him to preach to these dead bones. Verse 5 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Verse 6, I will attach tendons like what we saw in that video. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then, and here's the point, you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, preaching, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. The foot bone's connected to the leg bone. It's right here, it's in the Bible. That's not the next verse. Verse 8, I look... And tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. Notice this last phrase, but there was no breath in them. He assembled them. They looked like a man. They looked like a woman. They had muscles. They had tendons. They had, the bones were obviously there. He put those back together, but they had no life. Isn't that a picture of so many people in the American culture? Walking around, successful in their jobs, successful in their community, successful in relationships, but they know there's something missing. There's something missing here. They don't have life. 
It's like at my house. Uh, my, I've got my youngest daughter. She's four. She plays with these dolls. Some of them look like real little kids, and then she plays with these stuffed animals and stuff. And she thinks that, I think she believes like Toy Story. Like when she goes to sleep, they all start playing with each other, and they got personalities, and they're alive. The other day, I was walking down the steps at our house, and there's a bunch of rigmarole and stuff, just their toys on the, coming down the steps. And she's on the steps. That's why all that stuff's there. She says, shh, they're sleeping. I didn't even notice the dolls. So in my heart, I honestly thought, like, oh, my wife must have taken a nap. The kids, must, like, real people in this house are sleeping. And then I kept making noise and going down. She goes, she looks at me, and she's kind of annoyed that I'm making noise. She's like, they're asleep. And I was a little bothered that I was offending a four-year-old. And, and I wanted to say at that moment, of course they're asleep. They're not real. But I didn't want to crush her, and I don't want to pay for the counseling later. So I didn't say that. And if they were real, they got some creepy eyes, a couple of them, okay? They're just weird. Anyway, why aren't they? They don't have anything. There's something missing. They don't have life in them. The next couple of verses I'm going to read to you, I want, I want to point out something to you. And it's not important to you know Hebrew in order to understand the Bible or anything, but there's, one, there's a word in Hebrew that is translated as three different words in English throughout the Old Testament. And here, even in this passage, it's the word ruach. And it means breath, wind, or spirit. One word means all three things. In fact, it's the emphasis of this whole passage. It's in verse 1, it's in verse 14, and it's multiple times all throughout these 14 verses. But look at how many times it's right here, what God's going to say, what God's going to do. You can't do this, Ezekiel. Let me show you what's going to happen. What I promised in chapter 36, new life, spirit, new heart. Look what's going to happen here. Verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy, preach to the ruach. Not to the bones, not to the dead bodies. It's, it's like calling upon God in prayer. Preach to the spirit. Preach to the breath. Preach to the ruach. Preach, son of man, human that you are, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four ruachs, winds, O ruach, breath, and ruach into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and ruach entered them. And they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army, not scattered bones anymore, assembled with purpose, on mission, an army with life in them. See, what they lacked before was the power of God in their life, the spirit of God in their life, the ruach that was not there because they were cut off, they were separated, they were separated because of their sin. They lacked the power. It's like uh, recently, my wife and I were just talking yesterday, actually, about desserts that we have as a family. One of the desserts we'll do periodically is s'mores. I don't know if you ever do that, where you roast the marshmallows and the graham crackers and the chocolate. And she and I both have an understanding of what our job is when we have s'mores. Her job is to bring the food, which is, you know, Hershey bars, some graham crackers, and marshmallows. My job is to provide the fire. So what I've done is I've purchased at Walmart one of those little fire pits they have, and we can move it around different spots in the yard. I put it up on our back deck and just put a bunch of wood in it, had some junk mail in there, but I couldn't get the fire going. So I had this idea. I thought it was a great idea. I'd go get gas from the garage. It was a great idea. Those of you who are laughing. I went and got the gas can, the one I used for like the weed whacker, a little handheld one, and I walk up to the thing. I tell the kids, get back. I didn't know if there's like any sparks in there still. There wasn't. Pour gas all over it, light it up. It was awesome. Let me tell you that. I don't know what happened when there's fire around. All discernment leaves my brain. And so I was pumped up about this fire being there. And I, and I thought, that here's where I went wrong. If this is great, you know what I mean? Better? More gasoline. So as the fire started to die down, I took the thing. I put more gasoline on. But what happened was the gasoline started to come back up into the can. That wasn't a good idea. My wife and I debate about how much fire was actually on the deck. So I don't want to overtell the story. But there was 
fire on the deck because she told me before, go back underneath the deck, make sure that's all gone. <laughs> we all survive. Gas can's not quite the same as it was before. You know, the fire was lacking was fuel. It's like a car with no gas in it. It's like a toy with no batteries. It's like anything that doesn't have the power. You can't live on your own. Not the life that God intended for you to have. That's why Jesus says, you want life? I'm the only one that can give life because I'm the only one that can defeat death. So you can talk about all the, all the religions are the same. They all teach you to love God, love people, be moral. No, they're not. In fact, the Bible tells you, Christian, if you believe in Jesus and you say he rose from the dead and it's not true, you're worse off than everybody else. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, read it yourself. Because you're still dead in your sins and you're telling st people stuff that's not true about God. But you know what? He is risen. The tomb was empty, and he does offer life. If you're going to accept his invitation, it's an invitation to hope, to live, and to a new beginning in your spiritual life. See, we must accept his invitation to a new beginning in our spiritual lives, which is what this passage is all about. It's a new beginning for Israel that's being talked about here. It's a picture of God's resurrection power. In verses 11 through 14, God interprets the vision he's just given to Ezekiel. We already read verse 11, but I'll read it again. It says this, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone, which was true. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy, verse 12, and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I'm going to open your graves, not because you're awesome, because you're in a hopeless state, and I do some of my best work when you're hopeless. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel, a new beginning. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. That's the point. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. I'll give you life. I give you power. I give you my spirit, and I will settle you in your own land, new beginning, and I'll fulfill my promises, the promise you don't think I'm able to do. I will do it, not because of you, because of my grace. Then you will know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord, not because you're awesome, because that's what I do. You're cut off by my grace. I, I pull you up out of the grave. I pull, I I offer you life. That's what the resurrection is about. That's what Easter is about. It's an invitation. That same passage of scripture that says we are dead in our trespasses and sins in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Do you know what verses 4 and 5 say? Verses 4 and 5 say, it's very similar to Ezekiel here. It says, but because of his great love, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but because, not because you were awesome, not because you started attending church enough, not because you decided to clean your life up, not because you were going to be good, because of his great love. You know what his great love is? It's the cross. It's when he was nailed to the cross for your sins and my sins. We all went our own way. But anyway, because of grace, in spite of that, he went to the cross. That's his love. That's the full extent of his love. When he, he died the death that you deserve to die. Because God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. When we were dead in our transgressions, we were dead in our sins. It's by grace you've been saved. And he's offering you that salvation today. He's offering it to anybody who will take it. So the question becomes, how do you take it? Romans chapter 10 tells us how to take it. In Romans chapter 10, there's two verses that tell you how to accept the invitation, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You call upon him to save you. You've got you to tell him. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. It's not just one or the other. Both have to be true. You have to believe in your heart that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. It's a cornerstone of our faith as Christians. Without that, you are without hope. Without God at best, you're a nice guy on your way to hell. Verse 10, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 
What does it mean to do that? Well, it's, it's like when I proposed to my wife. We both intended on getting married. We believed that we would be married one day. We were committed to one another, but it wasn't until the wedding day when we stood before the pastor and the pastor said, do you take this woman to be your wife? And I said, I do, that we actually became married. Some of you, what you need to do with God is say, I do, I do accept you as my savior. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead and I confess you as my Lord. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. If you don't have new life, if you need hope, if you need his forgiveness, if you need new life, you want to ask Jesus Christ to be your savior, you can do that right now. You don't even have to leave here today. I'm going to tell you how to do that. I'm just asking us all to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I'm going to share with you a prayer that you can pray. The words that I'm going to share aren't magical. It's what's happening in your heart when you're confessing to the Lord that's, that's key. He offers you his spirit. He offers you his power. He offers you life. But you've got to ask him for it. That's how you receive the invitation. You see, you, you, you know that you're a sinner and you're cut off from God. You're without hope. But you believe that he died for your sins. And you ask him to be your savior. And so I'm going to pray a prayer asking Jesus to do that very thing. And if you want to trust Jesus as your savior, then just pray the same prayer with me as I pray this. And you can just whisper it as you're sitting in your seat. You can pray it out loud if you want. People rejoice hearing you pray it. The, the people sitting around you that aren't praying it, many of them probably have already. And so let's pray together. If you want to trust Jesus as your savior, will you pray this prayer with me? Dear God, I acknowledge I am a sinner. And just confess your sin to God, however you want to do that, whatever you want to say to him. You don't have to say those words. Just confess your sin, acknowledge your sin before God. And I believe that your son Jesus died for my sins. Just tell me what you believe about him. And I believe that he rose on the third day, that he defeated death. And I want your forgiveness. I want new life. I want your son Jesus to be my savior. If that's true for you, just pray and say, God, I want Jesus to be my Savior today. Just ask Him to be your Savior right now in this moment. Just pray and say, I want Jesus to be my Savior. Those might be the only words that you say. Oh, I'll just ask Him to be your Savior. And confess Him as Lord. That, that verse said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, confess Him to be Lord. And that means that, that something else, that you're not going to be Lord of your own life anymore. Religion isn't going to be your money's not going to be your, your goals aren't going to be. That Jesus is Lord of your life. Confess Him as Lord. before I ask everybody else to conclude this prayer and open their eyes. I just want to ask if you prayed that prayer, if you just prayed that, maybe you're praying it right now, would you just pop your hand up in the air? Acknowledge that and you keep it up in the air. I see people putting their hands up off to the left over here and some people slow. You can put them up high. Like you're telling God, even if you're in the video venue across the hall or if you're watching this online on the internet, just pop your hand up like you're saying, God, I just trusted you as my Savior.
Bible so you have the words of life and we want to give you some instruction. We don't want you just to make this decision. We want you to grow in your relationship with Jesus because he's got a wonderful plan for you. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you. Each one of us who have received new life, some this very moment, this day, and some years ago, we rejoice that the tomb was empty. Our lives don't have to be empty because the tomb was empty. 